0: Hello, I'm Aaron Lohr.
1: And I'm Caitlin Andrzejczyk.
0: And this is the Endocrine News Podcast. (music) Getting published can be a challenging journey, and that's why we're so happy to be joined today by Dr. Andrea Gore. Dr. Gore is a professor in the Division of Pharmacology and Toxicology at the University of Texas at Austin, and furthermore... She is the past editor-in-chief of Endocrinology. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Gore.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Now, nobody ever sets out to write up a poorly written scientific paper, and yet it does happen. As someone who's published many papers and has reviewed many submissions, what would you say constitutes a well-written scientific paper?
2: I would say that one of the most important things is that you need to tell a scientific story. Your paper needs to begin with what's gone on in the past, talk about what you've done and how you've done it, and then share your data and then tell people what it is that you found and why it is that that is exciting. But it really is telling a story and it needs to stay focused. It needs to have enough background information. It needs to have In the case of the basic science fields, you need to have a testable hypothesis that you can articulate well, and you need to have a well-designed study that you can take the readers or the reviewers through piece by piece and be able to arrive at some kind of conclusion that we hope is going to be something novel that will advance discovery.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about what editors and reviewers are looking for and what they do not want to see?
2: A paper needs to be very well written, well organized, attentive to details, but also have a bigger picture. When I was the editor-in-chief of endocrinology, the first thing that I would look for when I received a paper was, what do the figures look like? What do the data look like? I'd... Make sure that the experiment was well designed, that the data are very clearly presented, and that I can understand them just by looking at a figure or by looking at a table. Other things that I look for are appropriate statistics. It's absolutely crucial that people analyze and interpret their data properly because otherwise you cannot tell whether something is significantly different, for example, without having done the appropriate statistics. Another thing that editors and reviewers will look for is attention to detail. And that comes out in a number of ways. One is whether the paper was put together and things were organized in a really clear and thoughtful and concise way. If there are a lot of errors, even typographical errors, which really shouldn't reflect necessarily upon the quality of the science, if somebody's sloppy Mm. when they put together a paper, I actually will sometimes question whether there might have been some sloppiness in generating the data. If you have to keep track of a lot of numbers, those numbers have to be entered absolutely perfectly. There can't be any typos. So even though typographical errors may not seem terribly important, I think they reflect the sense of attention to detail that is so important for scientific research. We also look for a testable hypothesis. So what is the person doing and why? Is it something you can actually address by the method that is being used in the
0: paper? Is there a certain style of writing that may increase the chances of getting published?
2: It is very important to be able to tell your story concisely. Mm. I will often look at a paper and I'll see a 10-page introduction for a basic research paper. Really, I would say kind of a good formula if you're putting together a paper for at least when I was the editor of endocrinology. What I would look for was an introduction that was maybe two double-spaced pages. So that is probably about a thousand words or even less, maybe 800 Mm -hmm. words. You want your methods to be thorough. So there I'm okay with the details and, and length because others need to be able to replicate. So those sections can be a little bit more lengthy. The results need to be well organized. They should also be concise, and then the discussion really needs to focus on interpretation. I don't want to see a paper where the discussion simply recapit- recapitulates what was in the results section mm-hmm. without really saying why is this important and what does it mean. So that sort of I think is a pretty good formula for publishing in the basic scientists or in the basic science areas.
1: I know that many journals have uh, very specific author guidelines for authors to follow. Um, this is something that you as an editor probably look at very closely to make sure that the authors are following those those guidelines. Can you speak a little bit about that and your experience as editor-in-chief?
2: Yes. And when you're an editor-in-chief, you even have the opportunity to help uh, write or rewrite or up update the guidelines. So um yeah, I mean, to try to give you some specific examples, uh, one of the things I did it as editor-in-chief was to require that authors provide certain experimental details that are absolutely critical for replication. One of those things was antibodies. Mm. So in the field of endocrinology, a lot of us use antibodies for doing immunohistochemistry or Western blots or a lot of the epigenetic methods that are coming out right now. And the key to those experiments is having a really good antibody. But many of us get our antibodies, either they're commercial and you purchase them or you get them from a colleague. And if you don't have a good antibody, you can use it and you can get a result. But if the antibody isn't good, your result is absolutely meaningless. Mm. So I created a guideline that all all authors needed to explain how they validated their antibodies because that's the difference between your result being meaningful and your result being absolutely meaningless.
1: So after an author submits a paper, they're likely to have it reviewed, and possibly uh, go through a revision process. Can you describe some effective ways to reply to a rebuttal and navigate the whole peer review process?
2: As an author, if, if your paper has been reviewed, you're going to get some sort of feedback with respect to its disposition. Has it been rejected outright? Has it been accepted outright? Or has it been sent back to you to make revisions and and there can be sort of a range from minor to different types of major revisions. So acceptances right out almost never happen, so I don't need to spend any time on that. <laughs> Rejections outright do happen quite a lot and I think it's really important for somebody getting that kind of response to, first of all, not take it personally, because I feel like if you are sending your paper to a reputable and careful peer review journal, like one of the Endocrine Society journals, I think the review process is very, very fair and very thorough. So if a paper was rejected, it doesn't necessarily reflect upon your personal character. It may really reflect certain scientific shortcomings that maybe you're able to overcome. So even if you can't necessarily address the reason that the paper was rejected, you can certainly take that information and either use it to try to improve the paper and maybe send it to another journal Sometimes a paper can be rejected, and the comments are so helpful that even though the reviewers were exactly right and there was a good reason why your paper was rejected, you feel like you can address those comments. Then you can have the opportunity to really improve your work. Sometimes you can even go back to the original journal you tried in the first place, and sometimes they'll consider it and you can appeal. Sometimes they won't. But I think overall, it should be a very, very constructive process, and you sh- and you should try to uh, take that very constructively, even if it's a rejection. It's quite common to be offered the opportunity to make revisions, and again, you have to consider every single comment that's been given to you to determine whether there are points that you can or maybe you can't address all the comments. In your rebuttal, you always want to be incredibly polite and professional, you never want to say, you know, you're wrong <laughs> yeah. to the reviewers. The reviewers may be wrong, but you always want to give a very thoughtful, carefully crafted response where you tell the reviewers what, what maybe why you did what you did. You give them your response. You're very courteous. If you disagree with them, it's okay to disagree as long as you Carefully explain why you dis- disagree. And sometimes when it goes back to the reviewers, they realize, oh, you're right. Sometimes the reviewers will say, you know, you need to do something because you didn't do this correctly, and you did. But you realize in reading the review, you didn't do such a good job explaining it. So you also have the opportunity in your rebuttal to say, thank you for making that point, you're right. I did not explain this properly. So, you know, as written, I can see why you thought I had not done this correctly. But now that, you know, now that you've given me this information, I've gone and I've rewritten that section. And I think now you'll find that I actually had done it correctly.
0: Is there a way to determine whether rejection truly is a rejection or perhaps it's a major revision? Is there a way to know the difference?
2: So I think... A lot of that is in the wording of the decision letter, and I think the Endocrine Society journals as examples are pretty unambiguous mm. about their decisions. So if your paper is rejected, they're going to be very clear that that is a final decision. They may make recommendations for other journals to go to, but at least for the first journal that you submitted the paper to, I think if it's rejected, they're going to actually tell you that it's rejected. Mm-hmm. Those papers. Where there's rejection for opportunity to re- to resubmit, will usually come out and say something to that effect, so you can tell.
0: Um, one thing we haven't talked about yet is the big decision of where to publish. What sort of advice would you give someone who's wrestling with that question?
2: So, first of all, I guess it depends how experienced you are. If you're not a very experienced author. Um, The first thing I would do would be to probably get some mentorship on that and to ask colleagues who have expertise in the field to, if you're excited about a paper and you want to go for a real high-impact kind of journal, to talk to your colleagues and say, do you think that this might have a chance if I try to send it to one of those journals? And hopefully somebody will be honest with you and say, don't waste your time if, if it really isn't of that caliber. But that's sort of a small percentage of work. I think most of us aren't going to be able to get all our papers into science or nature. And so in those cases, what we're looking for are um, high-quality journals that have really good expertise, that have the editorial board that will appreciate the kind of work that you're doing. So I'm a neuroendocrinologist, so... In my case, I'm going to be looking for um, journals like endocrinology or journals that are more specialty types of neuroendocrinology journals. Mm-hmm. I do work on environmental health, so sometimes I'll send my work to environmental health journals. But even at my rather advanced, career, at my advanced age and advanced <laughs> career stage, I'll still touch base with my colleagues and um, ask their advice if I think I have something that I think is very important Do do they think I can get it into this journal or that journal? Now, there are sort of a lot of other questions because there are so many journals out there. And I know I personally am bombarded by emails from all sorts of journals that I've never even heard of them inviting me to submit my papers. Mm -hmm. And so there, I really like to kind of tell people to be cautious about those kinds of advertisements and to make sure that... Um, You know, they're journals that are sort of tried and true journals that are part of what libraries would subscribe to or, um, you know, journals that are established and are accepted in the field. And not to be fooled by journals that have names that might be very similar to a journal that you think you're publishing Mm -hmm. in, but actually is a completely different journal. And uh, some of those journals actually are considered to be predatory journals. So it's usually very safe to submit to society journals because most society journals have been around for a long time. They're established. They are known to be careful in peer review. So I think those are probably good choices for journals. Um, And then, you know, other journals that we sort of know about from our own specific disciplines. Mm -hmm. But just to be careful when you're submitting a paper to make sure that Um, You know, it's the journal that you think it is and that it's a journal that has a reputation, a good reputation.
1: Before we close, do you have any words of wisdom for those in our audience with aspirations of publishing their research? In particular, trainees or graduate students, postdocs, who might be publishing for the first time?
2: I, I started at the beginning by saying when you write a paper, you want to tell a story. And I think it's very difficult sometimes to know... When should that story end, right? Yeah. Because when you're a scientist and you're doing experiments and, you know, you're kind of generating the data, you're always thinking about what's the next experiment and what are you going to do next? And how are you going to, you know, if you found something, how are you going to be able to bolster that with more evidence? Or how are you, if you made a discovery, like you discovered a new hormone, You want to be able to do the next experiment to show, you know, how does it work and what are the mechanisms of action and where is it made in the body and so on and so forth. But one of the things I learned very young is you also need to learn when can you stop with a story, wrap it up, get it published, write it up, that's obviously a big part of it, and be able to kind of have a stopping point to be able to start to get your data published. I think a mistake that people make early in their careers is that they want to just keep going and going and going. They never reach that stopping point. And then three years have gone by and they actually haven't published a paper yet. And in my career in academia, that's death because you really have to publish. So I think being reasonable about what the expectations for a paper is very important. Getting mentorship for that is helpful. Taking the time to write but not being intimidated by the writing process because I think sitting down and writing a paper by yourself can be scary and kind of embracing the fun part of telling that story. I guess one other piece of advice is I found with some of my more junior colleagues that when they're trying to get started, they feel like they have to have a week ahead of them where all they're going to do is write a paper But the reality is that I think that is the worst possible way to write a paper, because it's so open-ended that you get distracted, you're checking your emails, you just, you you can't stay focused. I personally find it easier to write if I have an hour. In an hour, I'll say, I'm going to write two paragraphs. I can do that in an hour. And two paragraphs can be half an introduction to Mm -hmm. a manuscript. So kind of rethinking time allocation when you're working on papers. And then I think that's a good way to to not procrastinate, to keep saying, well, I don't have a whole day or I don't have a whole week, so I won't work on this paper this week. But actually just sitting down and making yourself doing it, do it for an hour here or an hour there.
0: This was terrific. I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast with us today. This has been great.
2: Thank you so much. <laughs>
0: That's all for this episode. Thank you for listening to the Endocrine News Podcast. To learn more, visit www.endocrine.org podcast. There you can find this episode and some helpful links. You can subscribe to Endocrine News Podcasts on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to leave a review on iTunes. And if there's a topic you'd like to see us cover on the podcast, let us know by emailing us at podcast at Thanks again for listening. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.